Turn again, if you would, to Job chapter 6. Job chapter 6. We have been considering Job's life because we do truly believe that as we uh, go through what God has us to go through, uh, he makes us more the servants he wants us to be. And so that certainly is uh, the purpose of going through this book. Uh, Certainly it's not an enjoyable book necessarily, not something you would enjoy watching a man go through, but at the same time, many, many lessons to learn from his life as you watch him go through the agony of his trial. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that Eliphaz has just gone through his presentation to Job. And we consider his words, what we really see going on there, what Eliphaz truly believes is that Job has sinned and he's suffering, paying the consequences for the sin that he has committed. And Job, instead of being comforted by this, these who have come to him, has instead been weighted down even further by the trial that he's going through. So in chapter 6 and 7, Job responds to what Eliphaz has said. And in his response, we're going to see again the burden that Job is carrying and the intensity of the trial that he is experiencing as he goes through this. Now, understandably so, Job is at the edge of despair. That's what we call this message this morning, a man at the edge of despair. That's where he is. Job has got no answers whatsoever to his questions. So far, his comforters have been no help whatsoever. In fact, they have turned out to be tools of the devil used to simply increase his struggle. And so what we're going to do this morning as we read through chapters 6 and 7 is simply listen to what Job has to say. Job begins begins to describe the weight of the burden he's carrying as he goes through this trial like no man on earth outside of Jesus Christ has ever experienced. Now, in the first four verses of chapter 6, we see this. We see Job weighs his grief. Job weighs his grief. Now, we do understand there's no tangible weight to grief. No special scale we can put that on that's going to tell us how much grief a person is experiencing. You've heard of those who go through tragedy with a heavy heart. And that's some indication of the weight that we carry when we go through some difficulty. Uh, Just one way to describe that. As Job considers the trial that he's experiencing, he begins to consider the weight of the what he's been called upon to bear. It's first of all that Job describes his heavy grief, grief that he's been through like no person on earth. Look at verse 4. Verse 1, rather. I'm sorry. Verse 1. But Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, the poison whereof drinketh up my spirit, the terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Job talks there about his heavy grief. Now, back in 2001, Sandy and I were privileged to be able to go down with a church group uh, to Argentina on a mission trip. We met there with our missionaries, uh, Steve and Pam Thornton, had a great time down there in that, at that time. We were there to help construct a second floor on their church. Uh, They were going to build a a second floor for classrooms. So that was our job while we were there is to help get that process started. Now, because of my vast building experience, because I know so much about all these things, uh, they gave me the highly responsible job of carrying buckets of sand to where they're mixing the cement. That was my job. Thank you, brother. I thought you would. And because that it had rained several days before that, that sand was wet and therefore was heavier than it would have been otherwise had it not rained. Now, if you've ever carried buckets of wet sand, then you know exactly how heavy they can be. Job talks here about that very thing. That gives us a picture physically of what Job was experiencing emotionally. He says in verse 3 there that the weight of his grief is like the sand of the sea. He refers to balances in verse 1, wishing there was some type of scale that he could use to measure the weight of the burden that he was going through. And in his response, what you realize is this, Job is not answering the the charges of Eliphaz. He is so caught up and so consumed by his own grief, he does not even attempt to argue with Eliphaz or answer his charges. 
And we really can't blame Elif- or Job rather, for what he's saying here. Uh, nobody in this room has ever experienced the kind of pain that Job is going through. And what's worse, Job is totally in the dark. He has no idea why this is happening to him. He has no one to intercede to God for him to find the answers that he's looking for. Humanly, there's probably only one person who's ever lived, a human being, who has ever come close to experiencing what Job experienced, and that is the Apostle Paul. I'd like you to hold your hand there in Job, if you would, and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verse, verse uh, 23. In this passage, Paul is describing what he endured to, over the course of his ministry for the Lord. And I want you to see what he says here and get some comparison, uh, although maybe slight, to what Job was going through. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, begin reading in verse 23. Paul says this, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren." In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things which that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now there Paul describes what he was dealing with as he went through his ministry. Now again, it doesn't even compare to what Job was going through, not in Job's league. But he has experienced more than you and I and most people ever experience through the course of their lives. Now here's the difference. Paul is on the other side of the cross. And because of that, he has more understanding about his suffering than Job did. So if we consider Job's concept of weight of his grief, and if Paul were to be asked, Paul, how much did it weigh that you, all, all the suffering you went through, what was the weight of that? What was the weight of your suffering? I'll go back a few pages, if you would, to Second Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, how much did all that suffering weigh that you went through? Second Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, we could park there and spend the rest of our time just considering that verse, but we're not going to do that this morning. What I'd like you to see here is Paul knew what Job didn't. Paul knew that God understood every pound of his grief and that someday at the judgment seat of Christ, the scales would be tipped in his favor. The affliction that he suffered, Paul suffered, would be converted someday, as he says here, to a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so I want to remind you again, you may be going through a difficulty right now. There may be, may be one waiting for you in your future. Regardless, God understands your grief. God gets it. God understands your affliction. God knows exactly what you are or will go through sometime in the future. And it is a burden here. There's no doubt about that. And the weight of that burden sometimes seems unbearable. But I will say to you, if we will give God the glory for our suffering, he will convert our burden of affliction into an exceeding and eternal weight of glory when you meet him someday. That's the hope. That's the promise, folks. Our trials, as hard as this is to believe as we go through it, our trials are actually the means whereby we can earn God's praise and earn God's commendation in heaven if we stand, as we stand before him. All we need to do is be willing to accept our suffering as part of his plan for us. 
Now, there's a separate truth I want to present to you this morning as well that some listening here may not be aware of or may be listening, uh, streaming this morning who don't know this. The heaviest burden that a person will ever carry is the burden of their own sin. There's no burden heavier than that. A person without Jesus Christ, a person who has never taken the forgiveness of sin that God offers to them, carries the heaviest burden known to mankind. Now, as believers, at times, God calls us to carry the weight of a trial or a difficulty. But a person never has to carry their own sin. Nobody has to do that. Jesus Christ took that burden so that we wouldn't have to. And so if there is somebody listening today who has never asked God to save them through the work of Jesus Christ, you are carrying a weight that you no longer need to carry. Uh, God will save you and take that burden from you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And before this service is over, we're going to give the opportunity for those who don't know him to trust him as Savior and relieve themselves of that burden. Now, what makes Job's burden even heavier is that according to verse 4, Job sees himself as the target of God's arrows. Again, Job is not aware of the battle that's gone on in heaven over him. He's ignorant of uh, Satan's role in this trial and is ignorant of the fact that he re- it is really Satan's arrows that are attacking him. However, the Bible does teach us that God has arrows like Job mentions here. Look again at verse 4. He says, therefore, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. He believes God is firing arrows at him. God does have arrows. David talked about that in, in uh, Psalm 38 too. He says, for thine arrows stick fast in me and thy hand presseth me sore. He asked God to use those arrows David did in Psalm 144, uh, 4-6 against his enemies. Habakkuk and Zechariah also speak of God's arrows. What, this make, what makes this confusing, folks, is that God has arrows, but Satan also has arrows. Anything that God does, Satan always attempts to counterfeit. That is why God instructs us, Paul instructs us through the Holy Spirit of God in Ephesians 6.16, above all, above all, taking the shield of faith, whereby you shall be able to quench what? All the fiery darts of the wicked. So here's the problem. When we're under attack, we may not be sure where the attack's coming from. It may be God using that attack to make us more like him. It may be Satan trying to take us down by attacking us as well. Job is unclear who it is that's actually shooting at him. And I want to tell you, sometimes we increase our misery by being too curious. We need to try to figure out who it is that's initiating the attack. Here's the best advice I can give you this morning, folks. When the attack comes, focus on how to deal with the arrows. Don't concern yourself with where they're coming from. Just realize the arrows are there, and in the best way you can, get into the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, figure out how to deal with the arrows as they come. Don't worry about where they came from and why they're happening. Make sure your heart is right, and make sure your sin is confessed. Put your faith in God's sovereignty. Uh, Keep your head down, and move on with life. Don't let that trial stop you or slow you down in your work for Jesus Christ. Amen. Number two, uh, Job also talks about his trial being hard to stomach. Hard to stomach. Uh, Job really here asks a series of four questions. And Job really isn't expecting an answer or a response. He's just asking these questions because all these questions really have a negative response. Look at verse five. He says there, Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass, or loweth the ox over his fodder? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? The things that my soul refused to touch are as as my sorrowful meat. Now, the heart of these questions is this. What Job is really saying here is, would I be complaining without a cause? When I was well, I ate whatever I wanted to eat. I was satisfied with whatever I had. I had a steady diet and things were good. Now I've got a steady diet of things that I can't stomach. 
sorrow, and grief, and affliction. What Job really is doing here is what we often do. He's reflecting back to the good times. He's thinking about the times before the affliction came, and then he's comparing it to what he has now. And again, as far as Job is concerned, he has lost all that he's lost through no fault of his own whatsoever. Those things were removed from him, and he was offered affliction instead with no clear reason and no clear understanding as to why that happened. And so in verses 8 through 13, Job expresses hopeless hoping. Hopeless hoping. Look at verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job explodes here with a a burst of emotional energy. He cries out to God and asks him to answer his prayer. And what is his prayer? The same prayer he prayed uh, prayed back in chapter 3. Job says, God, I'd be better off dead. Now, a person can ask for that all they want to, but that's not a decision for people on earth to make. God decides when a person lives, and God decides when a person dies, and God decides the timing of that. Nobody takes their own life in God's will. When people ask for that or make the decision to take their own life, what they're doing is they're putting themselves in the place of God. We can't do that. We can take no life outside of God's will. God takes care of that uh, that situation. That's all his. Verse 10. Then should I have a comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Where is my strength? What is my strength that I should hope? And what is mine end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh of brass? Is not my help in me, and is wisdom driven quite from me? All the theological philosophizing that Job does here, what is all going through is no value to him whatsoever at this point. It's not helping at all. All Job knows is this. He is miserable and that he sees death as the only way out. And I want to stop here for a second and make a theological point to you, or rather a spiritual point, a practical point. Job is right. Death is the only way out of the misery he's involved in. But not physical death like Job is thinking of here or requesting. The way out of the misery is death to self and death to flesh and death to the old sin nature. Folks, the one thing that happens when we get into a trial is that flesh begins to take control and that becomes our focus. Our trials get us down and we focus on our flesh. We talk about how life isn't fair and we shouldn't have to endure this, how that we deserve better than what we're getting. We get focused on the discomfort of the flesh, on the emotional and the physical pain that we've got to endure. Now, let me tell you, that's where those in the world focus. That's where the lost people focus when trials come, because the world and the flesh is all they have. That's where they focus. But as a child of God, there's a much bigger picture here. God uses every trial to teach you. God uses every trial to mold you. God uses every trial to make you more like him. And the much better choice for the believer is instead of focusing on the discomfort of the flesh, instead crucify that flesh and take on God's point of view and realize when God is at work in our lives, there is a much greater purpose being accomplished. Your trial, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, your trial is always a part of God's plan. Always. And we need to take an eternal perspective in what God allows into our lives. That is the only way to get relief from our misery. But it's only going to happen as we reckon ourselves dead to sin and dead to this flesh and alive to God. As long as that flesh is operating and has a voice, you'll be even more miserable as you go through that trial. But I want you to see Job's testimony at the end of verse 10. 
Job is wishing he could die, but notice what he says here at the end of verse 10. He says, let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Job is wishing to die, but even in the midst of that, he understands that what is truly important are the words of the Holy One. That's where the focus should be. Job has not cursed God. Job has not charged God foolishly. Instead, Job holds on to the only stable thing in his life, and that is the words of God. The words of God. And when we are in the midst of suffering, when that trial comes, the only place of safety and security, the only place of rest for the weary, is in the book that God has given to us. That's why we focus so much on that book here. That's why we encourage you that book when you're at home, get into the Word of God, find what God has for you in that book, because you see, sometimes when we're in the trial, we neglect God's Word because our misery gets the best of us. Let me tell you something, folks. That book is the only place to go when you're in a difficulty. You can't go anywhere else until you go there first. Now, there may be other options out there. You may find other resources at some point, but the first place to go when you're going through a trial is into that book, and don't come out of it. (laughs) Stay in the book. You say it's not helping. It doesn't matter. Stay in the book anyway. God has something there for you. You'll find security. You'll find safety. You'll find comfort in the words that God has given you in the word of God. And Job knew that even in the midst of this, his misery, he knew that's where he needed to go. Beginning in verse 14, Job focuses on his hardened friends. He focuses on his hardened friends. Look at verse 14. He says to him that is afflicted, Pity should be showed from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Job says, what are friends for if not to be there to provide pity when there's a difficulty, going, when a friend's going through some difficulty? And Job says, when a friend refuses to show pity, he or she is forsaking the fear of the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is this. If a person does not help a friend in time of need as a believer in Jesus Christ, they're not right with God. They're not right with God. Now, do you see where this conversation is heading? Let's just take a, a detour for a second. Look what's happening here. Job and Eliphaz are, are, are presenting their thoughts to each other. Eliphaz has accused Job of sin. And now Job accuses Eliphaz of sin. The only difference here is this. Job's right. We as believers are commanded throughout Scripture to help our brothers and sisters in time of need. And to violate that command is to disobey God. So as much as Eliphaz wants to believe that Job, there's uh, sin in Job's life that is causing this problem, uh, there is actually sin in Eliphaz's life for not bearing the burden of a brother during his time of need. The Bible talks about two kinds of sins. There are sins of omission and there are sins of commission. A sin of omission is not doing something that we know is the right thing to do. And when we neglect to help a fellow believer in their time of need, we are committing a sin of omission. And that is just as serious as a sin of commission, such as adultery or murder or stealing. All sin is sin. If I refuse to help a brother in need, it's just as big a sin as any other sin that I might come up with. Look at verse 15. My brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook, and as a stream of brooks they pass away. He continues his complaint. Uh, In the arid climates where Job lived, there are dry ditches and gullies in that area. And when the hard rainstorm comes, the water immediately runs off into those gullies, and those gullies absorb the water that falls. So as quickly as that rain falls, the water disappears into those gullies. What Job is saying is, my friends are just like that. 
That's a good picture of my friends. When the hard times came, my friends disappeared as quickly as the water does in those gullies. Instead of being there for me, they've all vanished when I needed them. Verse 16. Which are blackish by reason of the ice, and where in the snow is hid. Same idea. Snow is beautiful when it falls, but it soon disappears in the streams of dirty water. And what he says is Job was, uh, Job's friends were here with him for the good times, but they've left him when he has need. They're not anywhere around. Verse 17. What time they wax warm, they vanish. When it is hot, they are consumed out of their place. His friends have disappeared just like snow disappears on a hot day. Verse 18. The paths of their way are turned aside. They go to nothing and perish. He looked to his friends when he had need, hoping to find some comfort in them, but instead he found nothing at all of value in what they said. Verse 19, the troops of Tema looked. The companies of Sheba waited for them. They were confounded because they had hoped. They came thither and were ashamed. He's talking here about a caravan moving across the desert from Tema to Sheba. As those Temanites walk through that dry area, they search for water, but they don't find any because the water has all been absorbed into the gullies along the way. Job said, I had hope. I saw my friends show up. I believe they were here to help me, but my friends have disappeared just like that water does, and they've disappointed me. Verse 21, for now you are nothing. You see my casting down and are afraid. Look at those first words. For now, he says to your friends, ye are nothing. (laughs) Job says, as far as I'm concerned, you fellows are all worthless. No benefit to me whatsoever. Not here for me when I really needed you. And he uses the picture of a dry creek bed as an illustration of just how deeply they have failed him in their attempt uh, to help him uh, through his trial. Verse 22. Did I say, bring unto me, or give a reward for me of your substance, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the mighty? He said, I didn't ask anything from you. I didn't ask anything materially. I just asked you to come and be with me. I didn't seek some great reward. I just wanted comfort and understanding in my time of need. And back to uh, verse 21, ye are nothing. You've given me nothing that I needed. Look at verse 24. Teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I've erred. How forcible are right words, but what doth your arguing reprove? Now he's come to the same conclusion we've come to. These fellows have knowledge, they know the facts, but their timing and their tact and their application of those facts are all wrong. Job says, show me what sin I've committed, but they can't do it. They just say, Job, we know you've sinned. They just don't have any idea what the sin might have been. There is no sin to point to because there's uh, sin Job didn't do. Uh, this is not happening because of some sin. So all their arguing has done nothing to help Job whatsoever. Verse 26. Do you imagine to reprove words and the speeches of one that is desperate, which are as wind? Now look at verse 27. Yea, ye overwhelm the fatherless and you dig a pit for your friends. Job says it's useless to try to get words to get a handle on what's going on here. I can't tell you how it's going on. I can't find words, Job says, to describe the difficulty I'm going through. Now listen, we can't hold uh, Job fully accountable uh, for the words he's speaking during this time of agony. Uh, Job was a man after God's own heart. Job was a righteous man. He is saying things at this point in time he wouldn't normally say. But he's desperate and he's blowing off steam and saying some things that he would never say in normal times. And this is one more of the many times we need to cut him some slack. And we need to do the same thing with anybody who's going through a difficult time. 
Or when somebody's going through a trial, folks, don't hold them responsible for everything they say. <laughs> uh, cut them some slack. We don't need to respond to every desperate word they, a friend speaks in their time of need, when they're going through suffering. Sometimes the best thing we can do, and I will say oftentimes, the best thing we can do when somebody is going through a difficulty is stay quiet and listen and let them talk. Just let them blow off steam. <laughs> There's plenty of time for us later to, to, to speak our words. Just let them do what they need to do. Let them unload all the sorrow and the pain that, that's inside them. That's what a good friend will do for another friend. They'll just sit beside them and just listen and let all that stuff pour out. It's like excising some kind of a wound by allowing them to do that. Verse 27, Yea, you overwhelm the fatherless and you dig a pit for your friend. I sought comfort for you from you, but instead uh, you're not doing at all what you're supposed to do. Job says, why are you attacking me? Here I am going through a difficulty, and you choose to attack me even further as I go through this. I'm supposed to be your friend. That is not what friends do to other friends in time of need. And then look at verse 28. Job addresses this belief that Eliphaz has that his life contains some sort of a secret sin. He says, now therefore be content. Look upon me, for it is evident unto you if I lie. Return, I pray you, let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again, my righteousness is in it. Job says, look at my life and find the sin you're talking about. Uh, That sin, he says, if you find any anyway, sin is not the reason for my suffering. Now, I want you to see something here that we're going to see as we go through this book. And I think it's important to point it out. If Job has any problem in his life, it is a tendency towards self-righteousness. And we'll see more of that as we go through. Uh, Job at times has this tendency to trust in his own goodness and to take some pride in the good that the good life that he's lived. Now, he has grounds to do this. Again, he was a perfect man. He eschewed evil, as the Bible tells us. So he lived an upright life. But he has this tendency to take pride in that and see it as something notable and something that he needs to, that he, uh, people need to be aware of. And that may be part of what's creating his problem. It's not the cause of his suffering. But it might be increasing his suffering because of this pride he has and this unwillingness to take uh, to let go of this pride that he has as far as his own goodness. And you're going to see more evidence of that, I believe, as we go through it. Now, before we get into chapter 7, I want to stop here. I think as we've gone through all that we just heard Job say, I think it would be good for each one of us here to take inventory. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I don't apologize at all for how direct these questions may seem to you. Let me ask you, how good of a friend are you to those around you? How good of a friend are you to those around you? How well do you perform the requirements in Scripture as to how we are to treat brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? I want to make you aware of something this morning in case you don't uh, know this. There are people in this room this morning who are hurting. Right now. You may not see it on them. They may hide it well. But in this place this morning, there's the folks going through some stuff. Here's the first question. Were you aware of that? Did you know that? Did you know there's people around you this morning who are going through some major obstacles in their lives? You see, are you keeping connection with the body of Christ so well that you would know if somebody is hurting? Uh, Are you keeping connection so much that if somebody's going through a difficulty, you would be aware of that? Here's the second question. What are you doing to help their burden? And I asked that question to myself as well. I asked it to all of us here this morning. What are you doing to help the burden of somebody going through a difficulty? 
It is very easy, folks, and I hope you understand how I'm saying this this morning. It is very easy to come to church and play the game and look the part and walk out and do nothing with it. You're not here to do that if you know Jesus Christ as Savior. You're here to bear one another's burdens. You're here to exhort one another. You're here to find out what's going on and at the very least say, listen, I'm going to pray for you about that thing. And I'm going to pray specifically for you about that because I know exactly what you're going through. That's what we're called to do. Uh, Folks, God expects us to do that. That is not an option to a child of God. That is a command as big as any command in the word of God. That is not something we do if we can work it into our schedule. Some might say, well, you know what? I've got a lot going on in my life right now. I've got so much going on right now that I can't worry about somebody else. I've got enough going on in my own life. And that, that may be legitimate statements. There may be a lot going on in your life. But I want to say to you folks, we have a biblical mandate to bear one another's burdens. Not something we do just because we, uh, we're supposed to do it or because we uh, can into our schedules. I'm afraid oftentimes many believers are like Job's friends. We are friends who are ready to condemn, but hesitant to help. (laughs) Ready to point out all the reasons why you're going through the problem, but nowhere near trying to help you work work through it and walk through it. And I think we need to be aware of that. And if that doesn't apply to you, then just cast it off. If you're doing what you need to do, praise God for you and keep doing it. But if you're not, listen to me, we need to seek every opportunity and take every opportunity to be of assistance to those who are in need, whether we feel like it or not. Amen. Whether it's in our schedule or not, whether it fits the timeline or not. God expects us to do that. He has commanded us to do that. And someday, I truly believe, we'll answer to him in how we respond to that command of bearing one of those burdens. All right, I'll let you off the hook. Chapter 7. Job catalogs his complaints. Here he goes. He's continuing on. Job is now going to lay out specifically the things that are bothering him most in this trial. Look at verse 1. Well, it's verses 1 through 4. Job complains about the burden of life. Verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says this. Is there not an appointed time to man upon the earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? Job says here there is an appointed day for the death of every person on earth. Hebrews 9.27 says this, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this to judgment. Every person in this building, if Jesus Christ does not come back, has an appointment that you're going to keep. (laughs) You're not going to miss it. You're not going to get out of it. If Jesus Christ doesn't come back, every person in this room has an appointment to meet death at some point. And Job is not denying that truth. He knows that. He just simply says, My number has not come up yet, and I don't understand why. Job says, I'm ready to go. I want you to bring on that day. I'm ready for the appointment. Bring it on, Job says in verse 1. Look at verse 2. As a servant earnestly desireth a shadow, and as an hireling looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed to me. Job says, I'm like a worker that's just been fired. I'm going to go pick up my final paycheck and move on with my existence. He feels he has no reason to live. All that he faces now are empty days and sleepless nights. Verse 4. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? And the night be gone. And I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawning of the day. Can you get the picture? Job goes to bed at night and gets no rest whatsoever. He lays awake all night long, tossing and turning and waiting for the dawn to come. Now, if you've ever, ever been through a difficult time, or maybe you're going through one right now, that may be what you go through. 
Nights may seem like eternities of time. Remember, Job presents a picture to us of a person going through suffering. But he presents some other pictures to us as well. During the time of the Great Tribulation, uh, this will be the experience of every person on earth. They'll be waiting for the night to be over. They'll be waiting for relief from the difficulty going through from God's judgment upon them as God brings all that judgment fully to them. It's also going to be the experience of a lost person in hell where night has no end, where the day never dawns, where they lie in absolute darkness forever and forever, and they will exist in that place with the knowledge that they rejected God's Son, and they turned their back on God's love, and that they are separated from God forever. Job gives us that picture, not fully, of course, but he gives us that picture. And those folks remember all those times in hell when they had opportunity to accept God's salvation and every rejection they made when they had those opportunities. Well, so I'm going to tell you something. The heat and the flame and the darkness are just part of the torments that will be part of that eternal separation from God. Amen. Every person in that place this morning, people there right now, every person in that place this morning has on their mind that time when they were given the gospel of Jesus Christ and chose to reject it. Sure. And for all of eternity, that thing goes over and over and over and over in their minds. Could have accepted and rejected. Maybe there's somebody here listening. Maybe you rejected Jesus Christ. Maybe you're watching this morning. Maybe you rejected him. You're going to remember that for all of eternity unless you get that thing taken care of. It's going to be on your mind for eternity. Verses 5 through 10. Job complains about the present reality. Look at verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms and claws of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. Here is the reality of Job's horror. Here is the greatest man of the East sitting in ashes, his skin broken out from head to toe with boils, and there are parasitic worms that have taken root in the sores and are increasing the infection as he sits there. The greatest man of the East with open sores and worms crawling in and out of him while he sits in that place. Worms have a prophetic place in Scripture. Do you know that? We're not going to get too far into this this morning. But I want to read you a verse. Uh, Mark 9, verse 45, Jesus Christ says that hell is a place where their worm dieth not. Where their worm dieth not. Job describes it the same way in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24. Jesus Christ said in Psalm 22, 6, that as he was hanging upon that cross, he called himself a worm. <laughs> he called himself a worm. And the Bible seems to suggest that as a man uh, spends eternity in hell, as a person spends the rest of their eternity there, They devolve from human form into the form of a worm. And if that's the case, then what hell is this morning, what the lake of fire is today, it contains people who devolved into worms like maggots crawling all over each other in that place. You know anybody who might be heading there? Better talk to them. Better talk to them today. (laughs) Don't wait. Don't wait. They talk about hell being a joke, a big, you know, going to have a big party down there. I don't see a big party of heat and flame and darkness and maggots crawling all, all over each other. That doesn't sound like a party to me. Better get them saved. Better get them saved. Verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is wind. Mine eye shall no more see good. Job says, I realize how brief life is, and he's reminding God of that fact. And Job just wants his life to be over, but he's also aware that he's spending the brief time on this earth in despair, in total despair. Job reminds God again that he is only flesh and that he can't take this forever. 
but you see, the thing is, God knows that. God knows that. Uh, Psalm 78, uh, 39, For he remembereth that, that we are but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. Remember, when you're going through a trial, listen to me, God knows exactly how much you can take. Amen. Now, you may disagree with him on that. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. God knows what you can take. And God gives grace to help in time of need as you go through the difficulty you're facing. But God knows. Verses 11 through 21, Job complains he is a target of God's wrath. He's a target of God's wrath. Job believes that God has singled him out for a special attention. And you know what? He's absolutely right. <laughs> Chapter 1 tells us that's exactly what Job did, what God did. But since Job is unaware of that conversation, he assumes, as we would, that God must be mad at him. Look at verse 11. Job chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job feels that since God is angry at him, and since he doesn't have much time left, he's entitled to engage in some self-pity. And so in verse 12, Am I a sea or a whale that thou settest a watch over me? I believe I've been singled out by God, Job says. I believe you set a watch over me. I believe you are specifically focused on making me miserable. <laughs> you ever felt that way? <laughs> you ever felt that way? God, you are just intending on making me miserable. <laughs> well, that's what Job thinks here. That's what he's saying right there. And so I'm going to engage in this self-pity because God is picking on me. And he's picking on me for no good reason whatsoever. Now, you know why we think that? Because we don't think like God thinks. <laughs> We don't get the full perspective like God has. And therefore, we get very focused on our flesh, not realizing that everything God does has a much grander purpose to it that we just lose track of because this flesh gets in the way. Look at verse 13. When I say, my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifiest me through visions, so that my soul chooseth strangling and death rather than my life. I loathe it. I would not live always. Let me alone, for my days are vanity. Job began, my life's not worth living. It's just not worth it. I want rest. I want comfort. I can only find that in death, he says. And so much so that he says, I lay in bed at night and dreams come upon me and they scare me to death. <laughs> Ever been down that road before? Yep. Have a dream wake you up at night and you're sweating and screaming? <laughs> Job was going through that every night, every night, waking up every night, screaming with fear because of what he's been going through. And so he says, my life is not worth living. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, I want to stop right here and tell you something. Or let me make a statement instead. No, let me exclaim something. <laughs> what a difference the cross makes. Amen. What a difference the cross makes. <laughs> because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't need to die to find rest. And one of the greatest things of being a child of God is I find rest in Jesus Christ right now. Amen. Right now. Through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit of God, I find rest from my labors. I've got a comforter living inside me who guides me every step of the way. And my comfort, even in the midst of trial, is not found in some outside source. I've got all the comfort I need right here inside me. My comfort is found in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, and my comfort is found in the fact that I've got the indwelling Spirit of God inside me this morning. Amen. And that is a peace that no lost person can understand. You can describe that to them, and they have no concept of it. But you see, folks, when you're going through difficulty, if you're going through it now, or go through it sometime in the future, please hear me this morning. Look to the cross. 
Look to the Spirit of God. Find your comfort and your strength there. It is there for you. Just go there and find it. And that will at least give comfort and strength during the time of your difficulty. Verse 17. What is man that thou shouldst magnify him, and that thou shouldst set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldst visit him every morning and try him every moment? (laughs) You see what Job's saying? God, you won't let up on me every moment, every second of my day. You're on me. And what Job is saying, you may have asked this question as well. Why does God take such interest in us? (laughs) Why does God focus all this attention on us? Why is it that in us, what is it that is in us that would cause him to take so much time with us? Well, I'm going to tell you something. Don't try to find the answer to that question. You won't find it. There's no answer on earth for that question. God loves us in spite of ourselves. And someday in heaven, we might understand why. But God does care about us. Even in the trials, God is attempting to do a work through us because he loves us. God wants his purpose accomplished in us so much, he'll do whatever he has to do to make that happen. Even trial, even difficulty. Verse 19. How long wilt thou depart? How long wilt thou not depart from me? Nor let me alone till I swallow down my spittle. I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee? O thou preserver of men, why hast thou set me as a mark against thee so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. Now, I want to make sure we understand, Job has not accepted Eliphaz's premises that his trial is because of sin. However, Job has never denied that he's a sinner. Job knows that. Job just doesn't accept the fact that sin is what has caused all this to come upon him, some secret, unconfessed sin in his life. But Job does understand, as we also must understand, that he's got a problem with his sin nature. That is an issue. And that brings us to a theological truth that I'm going to close with this morning. The problem, and this is on your outline, because I want to make sure we knew it. The problem of every person on earth is sin. Capital S, capital I, capital N. That is the problem of every person on earth, not the sins they commit. The problem with all mankind, with all people, is sin. That's the problem. Now, Because of that, there had to be a a remedy for that, and Jesus Christ provided that remedy. When Jesus Christ died and rose again, he freed us from the control of that sin or that sin nature. A mankind's problem is they've got a problem with the sin nature that is involved in their lives, and that sin nature opposes everything that God says and everything that God does. But as I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, my sin nature is placed under the authority of the blood of Jesus Christ, and now I no longer have to sin. Now, I still will sin. But now, every time I sin, that sin is a choice. I no longer have to sin. I no longer have to commit those deeds. I do them because I choose to do them. Trials don't come into my life necessarily because of some secret sin that I've committed. But if I yield to that old sin nature, I'm going to create problems for myself. If you're struggling this morning, the first place I would check is to see what you're doing with that sin nature. Are you feeding it or are you starving it? (laughs) Are you putting things in to make it stronger or are you pulling things away to make it weaker? As I yield to that sin nature, I create problems for myself because I place myself out of the fellowship of God and out of the fellowship of God's plan for me. 
And so again, in that sense, Job is right. Death is the answer, but not physical death like Job is talking about here. Rather, if I want to have my life under the control of the Spirit of God, I must die to that old sin nature. That way God can work through me, and that way sin doesn't reign in me. That sin nature is a problem, folks, and we need to take care of it. For those who are saved today, I'm going to tell you what you need to do, what I do, what I need to do as well. If you're saved here, every day, at the beginning of each day, it will be wise for every believer to pray and ask God to keep us from temptation and to keep us from surrendering to the old sin nature. Say, Lord, I can't do this myself. It's too automatic for me. I say and do things without even thinking about it. So I need to ask the Spirit of God to take control and stop me from doing those things that that old sin nature wants me to do. Keep me from being tempted, Lord, and when the temptation comes, keep me from falling into it. If I want my life to count, I've got to be in fellowship with God. And the only way to be in fellowship with God is to get that old sin nature under control. That is the only way to be sure that our lives will glorify Him and be usable to Him. And death to self is the only way to make that possible. Believer, how are you doing with the old sin nature this morning? Are you feeding it? Are you starving it? Are you putting things in to make it stronger? Are you pulling things away to make it weaker? If you're feeding that old sin nature, you're going to have problems until Jesus Christ takes you home. Amen. Every step of the way is going to be a struggle. What you got to do is say, Lord, it's yours. And the best way I know how, I'm letting you have it. I'm letting you take control of it. And Lord, whatever you want to do with this sin nature, do it. Just help me not to fall into it and, abide, and allow it to control my life. And if we'll do that, God will use us. And we'll be in fellowship with him. And that's the way a believer needs to live. Heads bowed and eyes closed.